0: I'm going to begin this evening with a statement. There is life in the Word of God. That sounds like a very churchy thing to say. When I say, there is life in the Word of God, you might be nodding your head in automatic response like a churchy person would. Oh yeah, that makes sense, I've heard that before. Or you could be thinking, what is this guy talking about? Life in the Word of God, and what is the Word of God? Is it this, you know, something else? I'll say it again, there's life in the Word of God. Notice I didn't say there's life in the words of God. There's life in the word of God. One time Jesus was talking to some people who were experts in the words of God. They knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. They knew all the stories. They could debate the meaning of obscure words and sentences. They created whole systems of religious life and moral customs around the words of God. Anyway, Jesus is talking with these experts one day and challenging them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them. But it's these these scriptures, these words of God that actually testify about me. And you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is known as the Word of God. There is life in the Word of God of God Jesus the word said let there be light and there was light Jesus spoke and things were created Paul when he writes to the Colossians tells us that all things that were created in the heavens and earth dominions and rulers and authorities all of those things were created through Jesus and for Jesus there is life then in the word of God which is why we preach the words of the Word of God. Last week, we began our series in Matthew's Gospel. Actually, we picked it up, technically, because we left off there two years ago. And so this evening, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 8. In this chapter, we find that we have life... In the Word of the Word of God. Now before we dive into our chapter, let's recall some of the words that the Word has been preaching so far in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 4, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, that with His presence... God's kingdom is actually starting to break into our world. He's saying that the tables have turned, and even though evil still hangs around and holds some sway, it's basically defeated. It's on the run. Jesus begins speaking words of the kingdom. He calls people to repent from the way they've been living and to follow Him. Jesus begins doing deeds of the kingdom. He heals with His word. He casts out demons with His word. But there's something amazing and unexpected and revolutionary about the words of the word. Jesus begins this big sermon on the mount by redefining what it means to be God's people, redefining what it means to be an insider with God. And instead of focusing on things like self-righteousness or race or performance, Jesus says things like, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit.'" for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth." That's crazy talk! But Jesus is flipping things on their heads and saying, this is, uh, I'm redefining what it means to be God's people. And he had two criteria. One is, where do you place your trust? You can be part of God's people if you trust in Jesus, that's what he's saying. He's redefining it all to trust in himself. The second criteria is, okay, you trust me, then trust that the way I say to live is the best. And so we get through most of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I ask you? Right, so he asks this question. So Jesus says, hey, it doesn't matter what your background is, where you're from, You can be part of God's family through trusting in me. Now for the vast majority of people who didn't think that they were good enough, or Jewish enough, or smart enough, or wealthy enough, or healthy enough, this is very, very good news. This is a group of people, the majority of people probably, who didn't think that they had access to being in the people of God. So then, Jesus comes down from the mountain, and we saw last week when we looked at Matthew eight one through 4, one through four or five one through five, that um, Jesus heals this leper, this man who was on the outside of God's people because he was unclean with leprosy. Jesus touches the man, and instead of the leprosy infecting Jesus, making him unclean, Jesus infects the leper. And when he touches him, of course, the disease went away, but also he becomes holy and whole and able to participate in the people of God. We now pick up the story in Matthew 8, 5 through 17. I want to invite you to stand as we read that section of the Gospel of Matthew. It starts like this. As Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And I say to another one, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out to outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. But when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. She got up and waited on him. And when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were ill Now, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for uh, these experiences. An amazing story in and of themselves. But I pray through the power of your spirit that these would be more than a story for us that they would come alive and breathe life into us, that you would increase our faith. Help us, Lord. Help us to trust you. Amen. You may be seated. So that section we just read, Matthew 8, 5 through 17, could easily be broken up into three scenes. And if you include uh, the leper, which I think is Part of this whole thing, although it's just too much to preach on in one week. That's why I did it last week. Uh, I think there's four scenes going on, but we'll take these remaining three. uh, And in scene one, then, we meet this centurion. Centurions were fairly high-ranking military men who were in charge of a century of soldiers, roughly a hundred. Experts say there's probably between 65 and 85 at, at any given time. And they would set up shop in these little, small outlying towns, and they would basically be the control over Uh, over those areas. Centurions were, by definition, Roman citizens. They had to be, and therefore they were pagan. They worshipped a pantheon of Roman gods and would have had to sworn allegiance to the emperor in order to even be in his military. Centurions were, they basically represented the oppressive hand of Rome. Rome especially over people like the Israelis. So whenever a local execution took place in one of the outlying towns, guess who it was that made that decision? It was a centurion. Or whenever there was a public outcry, guess who would squash that? It'd be the centurion. So the centurion was basically like... Imagine if a sheriff out in Everson or something like that, imagine if the sheriff actually pulled up on scene to a crime or to a dispute and then all of a sudden was also the judge and the jury and could just do whatever right there on the scene. There's no due process. That's basically the power a centurion had. So if you were a Jewish person, you were very fond of centurions, to put it lightly, because they could do whatever they wanted to you. They had ultimate power, even in your own country. The centurion in our particular story comes to Jesus and tells him that his slave is very ill. Paralyzed is one word. And then another modifying word in that sentence is that he was fearfully tormented. Um, Some believe that this was his son. There's a a funny word there used for servant that could also be used for child. Uh, But whatever it was, if it was the centurion's slave or the centurion's son... The idea is that someone very important to the centurion is very, very sick. And he comes to Jesus. Now, Jews, especially Jews who are teachers or prophets or someone believed to be the Messiah, like people were kind of thinking Jesus might be, would never go into a Gentile's house because it would make them ceremonially unclean. They couldn't worship at the temple for over seven days. They'd have to shave their head and do all these special washings and things like that. So... Jesus responds in one of two ways. One way the sentence can be translated is, Shall I come and heal him? Alright, in fact, in your pew Bible, that's the way they translate it. Another way to translate that tricky Greek sentence is, I will come and heal him. Okay? Now, there's a little difference, uh, but here's here's the thing. Either way you slice it. The centurion never asks Jesus to do anything. He simply states the situation, Hey Jesus, I've got this servant or son who's paralyzed and fearfully tormented. That's all he says. Jesus takes the initiative to do something about it. You know, Jesus is like that. He takes initiative. He knows what we need before we ask. He doesn't require a lot of words. You don't have to pray fancy prayers when you approach Jesus. There's no magical incantations or secret words that like pastors have and we do a secret handshake with Jesus. Like he's very accessible. He knows what you need. There's... He is, what he's looking for, I think, is our trust in him. The centurion, just by going to Jesus and saying what's wrong, is expressing trust. Notice, by the way, some of the risks that the centurion is taking. First, he's sworn allegiance to Rome and declared that Caesar and Caesar alone is his authority. Yet, do you see him going to Caesar with this issue? I don't hear any stories about Caesar ever he- healing anyone, even though he thought of himself as a son of God. All right. So so the centurion is uh, is going to Jesus here. The centurion is a man of authority, and he's in power over these lowly Jews, and yet he recognizes, man, there's something about this Jesus guy, and he has some kind of authority that I don't even have. So the centurion demonstrates great humility His actions show that he needs Jesus and that he's willing to risk his reputation and to break social norms in order uh, to present this case to Jesus. The centurion also recognizes that he is unworthy to have Jesus in his home. You see, the Roman gods were not very nice. In fact... It's so funny when you read them. The Greek gods were the same. In fact, they the Romans gave the Greek ones different names. And, and they're petty. And they're a lot like us. Actually, they're a lot like teenage versions of most of us. And, and they fight all the time. And they're vindictive. And they, they create alliances like on Survivor or something like that. And if you wanted to get them to do anything, at least in the ancient stories, you had to bribe them or make certain sacrifices. And even after all that... Basically, the Roman gods weren't going to do anything for you unless it would benefit them politically somehow in their pantheon of of, of power. So the centurion isn't used to a type of God who would actually care enough to just do something. The centurion doesn't expect that Jesus would even think about going to his home. But check out this guy's faith. He says, just say the word. Just say the word. There's life in the word of the word. When Jesus speaks, something happens. When Jesus speaks, something happens. Well, Jesus just marvels at the centurion's faith. He says, truly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. That's a statement. Okay, think about this. Israel has has had the promise of God, has had the scriptures in their possession for centuries. They were the chosen people who were God's holy ones. People, uh, part of God's story for all these centuries. And yet the centurion showed more faith. And here we see the power of Jesus. The power of faith in Jesus. The centurion comes to Jesus with a loved one who's sick. He believes that telling Jesus about his problem is going to bring some kind of result. He doesn't know what. And what he finds is, besides the fact that he discovers Jesus can indeed heal with a word over long distances, which is a pretty cool superpower, but what he finds is that he has, through his faith, stumbled into something much older and much more significant than he could possibly have imagined. This desperate, pagan centurion has stumbled into a story, into the ancient story of God's rescue mission to the world. Genesis 12, God chooses a people, a man, Abraham and his family. He says, I am going to bless you, Abraham, and all your descendants so that... That group of people will be a promise-bearing people to the entire world. I want to bless you and your people so that the whole world would come to know me and love me and worship me and know how much I love them. All right? So what Jesus is saying and showing us is that the way to become part of God's story, part of his plan to rescue the world, is simple. It's through faith in Jesus And his word. Now, at the same time that Jesus says this about the centurion's faith and the lack of faith of Israel, he is not saying some things. Let me just say this very clearly. Jesus is not saying the covenant with Israel is void. Jesus is not saying that the sons of the kingdom, which in that text uh, are Israel, are doomed. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that no one Not Israel, not Christians, no one has a claim on God. We might be stewards of His story, stewards of the good news, but we do not possess God. No one person or one group of people has a claim on Jesus. The last I checked, the scriptures say that Jesus, the Word of God, has a claim on you and has a claim on me. And frankly, that's the way I like it. Because I screw things up when I'm in control of them. Right? The warning here to Israel, I think, is a warning to the church as well. Do we sit by complacently thinking we're in because a long time ago one of us might have prayed a certain prayer or because we go to church regularly? And so pff, we possess salvation. We're in. I think that this is a good reminder to ask ourselves do we have faith? Do we trust in Jesus? Or are we just taking that for granted? I think it's an important thing for us to ask ourselves, are we being exclusive? I, I, I want to point something out. That in the four gospel accounts, Jesus talks about this Gehenna, or uh, what we've come as a church to call hell. He talks about that quite a bit. And every time he talks about it, it's in reference to the people Who think they possess God. It's in reference to people who are either beginning to follow Jesus, the church, or to Israel. But you don't ever see Jesus with the sign with flames on it, talking to people who never knew God. He doesn't go up to pagans and use hell as a coercive statement to get them to convert. Isn't that interesting? Do a study in the Gospels. Look at every time he talks about hell or Gehenna. It's always with reference to people who are already in relationship with him. That ought to tell us something. Jesus speaks of this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is kind of an ancient Near Eastern metaphor for deep regret. It's like, you know, you make this mistake and you're like, ah! I wish I had a do-over and just extreme agony, not necessarily even physical agony, but just the agony of, oh, I missed it. All that time I was going through the motions and never had faith, and now I'm reaping the consequences of my action or inaction, weeping and gnashing of teeth like I've got the goosebumps. I mean th- this is a this is a warning that Jesus is giving to um, the people of Israel and I think to the church as well. So Jesus heals this centurion servant or his son through a life-giving word. And he says, "Go. It will be done to you." As you have believed, as who has believed, think about that. it will be done to you as you have believed. The sick servant or son didn 't do anything in this in this passage. The centurion 's faith in Jesus was effective for someone else. Now, if that isn 't a reason to pray for other people i don 't know what is isn't that really cool? That's not saying that Jesus always always works through proxy, like if you pray enough for someone else, it's just going to happen. But it is a neat thing that, that the centurion's faith was effective for someone who wasn't even there. That's awesome. Jesus knows already. Jesus cares. Jesus will do what is best. That's all the faith we need. Faith on behalf of others, even others who don't have faith. Amen? That's It's pretty cool. That's an encouragement to me. The idea of Jesus knowing what we need before we ask it makes a lot of sense. Think about just a few chapters earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching the disciples to pray. And he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's not a function of the words. It's a matter of God inviting us into relationship with him to place our faith in him. Faith in not only what we want him to do, but faith that what he actually does is best. And that's very difficult sometimes. In tonight's text we move to scene two. Peter enters into or Jesus enters into Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law is sick with the fever. No one asks Jesus to do anything. No one in this story even says that she's sick at all. Jesus just sees the problem and He graciously touches her and heals her. Now, I can't say enough about how that impacts me, about who Jesus is. That He sees an issue and is already there. He's already on it. I, for one, tend to get overwhelmed with the issues of the world. They they seem so big and so paralyzing. Um, I don't even know where to begin praying sometimes, and sometimes I wonder if my prayers make a difference at all. On Saturday, I don't know if you read the Herald, there was this article on page 4 or 5, it's in the back, about a woman uh, on the Tulalip Reservation living out of a car, drug addicted with two kids, living in the car. And uh, when they found the kids both under three, one was dead. And they both had maggots in their diaper and lice in their hair. And I'm just thinking to myself, what kind of evil, you know? And, and what happens to that surviving three-year-old boy? What kind of issues with abandonment? And this mother, when now she's sobering up in jail and going through withdrawal, when she realizes what happened, How do you recover from something like that? Or do you just get out and then you want drugs all the more because that's the only way to numb that pain? And I was reminded in this passage, you guys, that Jesus is already there. He's already way ahead of me. And sometimes I don't need the right words to pray. I take comfort in the fact that Jesus is on the scene. And I'm, I'm just there. I'm, I'm open to the fact that I know if I lift th- this situation up, He's doing something. He's in the works. And sometimes that will play out in, in Him telling me to do something about it. And sometimes that, that will just be to share the story. Jesus knows already. And yet He wants us to engage in lifting people up he wants us to engage in lifting circumstances up even when we don't know what's best. You know, up in pre service prayer we pray before we meet, and Wayne brought up, you know, the French are bombing Mali right now and the, helping the government against the rebels. I mean who even knows who's right in the you know, we don't even know what's all the nuances. I'm not on the ground there. It's like, what do you do with that? And half the time it's like, how do you even pray? We just Lord, we just lift up that situation to you. Thank you that you know what's best. Thank you that you're already involved. Lord, have mercy. You know, and I'm so thankful that Jesus is the type of God who already sees a situation and is proactive about it. Now, when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, the first thing she does is gets up and serves him. And I think it's theologically significant. Don't miss this. That she doesn't get up and serve him and then he heals her. She didn't have to earn enough points with Jesus before he would do something for her. And I, I don't know if, if you have this responsibility complex like sometimes I do. I think secretly there's a part of me that thinks I've got to invest enough Bible reading time or prayer time. And in, in if... In if and if i got enough good points, then Jesus is more apt to work for me, right? Or f- on, on on other people's behalf if I pray for them. Maybe I'll just admit that that's sometimes in my subconscious. And sometimes when I make mistakes, when I'm sinful, I think, oh, that's it. Now I'm less effective, I'm less powerful, or God's not going to do as much for me. And that's, that's really not the message of grace here. It, We ought to serve because Christ first loved us and gave himself for us. So even in this little story about Peter's mother-in-law, I think we learn a significant lesson about grace, that that any service we bring, even if you're hyper-responsible, it ought to be in response to Jesus' love. Let's pause for a minute and ask what all this means so far. We've got this healing of a leper, and we've got a healing of a, a centurion's slave or, or, or son, and we've got the healing of Pete's mom-in-law. And on the surface, these powerful stories show us a glimpse into the heart of God. You know, they show us that uh, that God has power in action. They show us that Jesus has authority to say the things he says because he can do the things he can do. And these healing stories show us that when the word, Jesus, speaks a word, there is life. And that would be a fine message, and I think that that's all there. But I want to suggest that there's another layer of meaning here. Jesus is breaking down the walls that separate people from God. Jesus is making himself, think about this, the center of of Jewish Religion, um, devotion to God was all centered around the temple in that early first century. And I think what Jesus is doing here is making Himself the new temple, making Himself the center of how you connect with God. I'm going to ask um, Scott to throw up the, the slide of the temple there. So consider this. This is... Uh, a reconstruction of the temple. It doesn't stand anymore, of course. Uh, just a, a few walls do. Uh, but here, so here you have the outer wall of the temple, and then um, the inner wall. This would be this whole area in between the outer wall and this inner structure. This is this huge area is the court of the Gentiles, and then you've got the court of women, and then you've got where the Jewish men, can hang out, and then the really special Jewish men could go there. Uh, so. The first healing is with a leper. A leper, as you remember last week, is not even allowed in a walled city. And any city worth its salt had a wall back then, so they're on the outskirts of town. They couldn't even be in Jerusalem, let alone in the temple. So a leper couldn't even connect with God. It was the furthest out you could be. So Jesus heals a leper and tells him to go where? To the priest to present his offering. Okay, so leper. Then a centurion who's a Gentile man. Again, a Gentile can't enter this space. But a Gentile who does the right things, who's converted to Judaism, is circumcised as an adult. <clears throat> that would really hurt. And then, um, and then also is baptized. A Gentile man could then get access to the court of the Gentiles and be converted to Judaism. So you get a little bit closer than the leper, technically. Go ahead and go to the next slide, Scott. Uh, So here again is that outer wall. Uh, The leper couldn't even get in this outer wall, but through Jesus he now has access. A Gentile, uh, at best, could get into this court. But through his faith, he has direct access to God and Jesus. A Jewish woman could only go into this court. You know, Jewish women... uh, It was horrible. I mean, it was just the ancient Near Eastern period. I mean, the women were kind of second-class citizens. And even in Judaism, they could only get into this outer court. So this is the court of the women. And then the super special, just by being born male and Jewish, you could get into this area. Okay? So Jesus... Three levels of outsider. Leper, furthest out, does a healing. Centurion, second level, brings him in. And then by touching, first of all, you weren't supposed to touch a woman that you weren't married to or wasn't in your family. And no one was supposed to touch someone with a fever. Again, it would make you ceremonially unclean. So here Jesus is breaking all these barriers by healing this woman and bringing her close to him. Thanks, God. The leper, the Gentile, the woman, all brought close through Jesus. There is life in the word of the word. Now, just so there's no confusion in the matter, Matthew kind of summarizes this whole string of stories with the third scene. Evening was falling, and the crowds brought to Jesus all kind, or two kinds of people, demon-possessed, who are the spiritually sick, and the ill, the physically sick and the socially isolated. Matthew is clear that he healed them, how? With a word. He healed them with a word. There is life in the word of the word. Matthew tells us that Jesus did these healings to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, two verses of Isaiah 53 which Tim read earlier. And they're these words. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. This prophecy from Isaiah 53 talks about God's special servant. The one God would send to take on the sins of the world and bring salvation. He will heal the infirmities of the physical nature and spiritual nature and emotional nature and social nature. The servant would bring nothing less than shalom, which means peace in every aspect of your life and the social realm. So remember me saying before that in Jewish thinking, you couldn't have shalom, Josh, if Jeannie didn't have shalom. Because we're all part of the same community. We have this inherent symbiotic relationship. So shalom only can happen to a group, to a community. And it, uh, Scott McKnight says, uh, the shalom is when you, when you have what you need and you need what you have, your community has what it needs and needs what it has. Basically, peace in every aspect of your life. That's what the servant is supposed to bring. Now, think about how Jesus brings in these outsiders as a foretaste of that. When Jesus died on the cross, with a word, he said... It is finished. And the veil at that moment of the temple that separates the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, from everyone else separated. It was torn in two. And there is life in the Word of the Word. And the Word, Jesus Himself calls us to trust Him and to follow Him. Do you join me in prayer? Lord, um, I'm thankful for your servant Matthew who compiled this incredible account, who wrote this down, who, who was, just followed you faithfully. I'm thankful that you have preserved the words uh, that reveal the word so that even today, thousands of years later, we can be struck afresh with this good news. Thank You, Lord, Jesus, that You gave Yourself, um, that You break down barriers between the things that uh, are artificial, that keep us from connecting with You. Thank You that You break down barriers of race and class and culture and gender, that You require the one thing that we can all give, and that is faith, trust, trust, Lord, help us to trust You. Help us to put our our weight, to put our, um, our hopes and our dreams into You. And I pray that You would bear much fruit in us, Lord, as we learn to trust You. For forgiveness, yes, but also for new life, to live differently, to live abundantly, to live without fear. To live lives that express your love to other people. Lord, make us new in your spirit. Thank you that there's life, Lord, in you. Amen.